my attorney, Jay Quattrini, was also Jimmy's business attorney. And I remember when Jay went to pitch him to some executives to run the urban music department, that their concern was his background and his reputation. And it was always very funny to us because we don't see that side of Jimmy. Like, Jimmy is really calm and mild-mannered. He's not arrogant. He's not anything that that you would think that he would be if you just listen to the press. What I found myself doing was always proving myself over and over again. And I couldn't understand why, because I'm like, I had more hit records than a lot of these guys in the business, and they're being embraced and given opportunities. Those executives wasn't going into Compton to find games. Them executives wasn't going to Detroit to get Mario Winans. Them executives wasn't going and talking to T.I. when they had a problem with him. And yeah, it took guys like me who understood the environment in the communities that they make all of the money from. But what I didn't know was that they would vilify me. After they asked me to be that guy who could straddle that fence and deal with the people they don't want to deal with. Here is Imam Rashid the spiritual leader of the Mosque of Islamic Brotherhood, located in Harlem, New York, the mosque that Jimmy attended. I think I've known Jimmy about 18 years now. And as he has matured, he's always been in a real life and death struggle with Jimmy Hinchman. And I remember uh, him saying to me that he really regretted that he ever invented that guy. I had to put out a press release stating, that is not my name, do not call me that anymore. I didn't like the connotations that came with it. It was hindering me from becoming who I wanted to become. My dream had always been to be corporate, to have a travel and expense account, to be on the board of something instead of just a consultant. And in 2007, Jimmy was finally given a shot at his dream. His success had put him on the shortlist to be the next vice president of Virgin Records, the urban music department. A guy like me who comes from the projects of Brooklyn is being offered to run the rap department of Virgin Records. But the first thing when I go in for the meeting for the job, the exec look at me and say, this Jimmy Henchman name, oh my God. He said, it's a big landing. You come in the building, it's, it's whispers all over the place. Ultimately, Jimmy was not hired for that position. The then Virgin Records exec told him it was because of his reputation and that he had never seen so many people hate and fear a man so much. And that made me just realize that I wasn't part of the good old boys club. I just knew where I stood at that point. Yeah, I was very disappointed, but I, I knew I had to keep working, keep doing what I do. That made me money and made me successful in my own terms. Discouraged by being passed over by Virgin Records, Jimmy brought in his business model and started producing television shows and films. He produced the original 50 Cent documentary, the national syndicated poker series Hip Hop Hold'em, and the movies Belly 2, and the cookout too. Welcome to a bonus episode of the Unjust Justice Podcast. In the episode you just listened to, 
For the average person, you can make a case that Jimmy's story, which takes place in the world of hip-hop celebrity and the underbelly of the drug world, that it might not be too relatable. It is a Hollywood tale in the truest sense, but there is a small part of episode 4 that I think a lot of people can relate to on many levels. After fighting his way inside the hip-hop music business, Jimmy was one of the finalists to become the vice president of urban music at Virgin Records, the brainchild of Australian billionaire Richard Branson. I hope we all know what it's like to really want a job, a job that can change our lives, a job we deserve, a job we fought for. And I'm assuming with anything in life, if you really want something and that ends in disappointment, it can have a profound effect on the trajectory of your whole life. It can have vast consequences. It can be, to use a cliche, the proverbial fork in the road. If Jimmy did secure that virgin job, if he did catch that break, there is a very strong case to be made that he wouldn't be sitting in a federal prison right now. He wouldn't have entertained the idea of going back to old habits. Now you might ask yourself, how do I know this? Or how am I making these assumptions? I know this because I was given an email that was written by Jimmy right around the time he was shut down to get the virgin job. It's an incredibly insightful email, equally sad, but very revealing. This email was written on January 30th of 2007, ironically enough at 3.33 a.m. in the morning. The email was addressed to a list of eight names that worked very closely with him in the music business. The email reads as follows. I was told tonight that I won't be getting the virgin position. I just wanted my closest comrades to know first. In any event, this will only bring me closer to my retirement in the business because out of Jason Flom's mouth himself, he said he has never saw people hate and fear a man so much. Many men discouraged him from me. I've tried to be accepted for too long and I'm now exhausted, humiliated, and embarrassed that the common progressions that the common man takes in this business is not afforded to me. I'm almost fooling myself that they would one day accept me as their peer. But tonight, I was brought down to earth. I just thought I'd share this with you. It was you who bought into the vision and the campaign to make me them. Thanks for the dream and hope. I guess this was one time we rooted for the bad guy and he almost won. I must rejuvenate myself. There will be changes this year at Czar. I've been to this crossroads before though. Thanks for listening. I think every sentence in this email could be dissected and analyzed. But for me, there are a few key points to be made. Jimmy references Jason Flom, who at the time was running Virgin Records. Jimmy would have ended up working with Flom if he was brought onto the job. 
Jimmy stated something immensely telling. He said that Flom said it himself. He never saw people hate and fear a man so much. Many men discouraged him from me. This does get to the root or the theme of whether in business, people believe or buy into the fact that you can have a second act in life. You can get lucky enough to outrun your past and move on from that. But let me make another key point. A lot of what hip hop is and always has been is this idea of myth making. Stories that are created to sell music, narratives that glamorize the streets, and all the negative press that Jimmy got at that time would have only built him up into this nefarious figure. Keep in mind, in this day and age, celebrities have the power of Instagram or Twitter, wherein they can give their millions of followers their own truth, their own spin. They can speak up for themselves. The time Jimmy was on the rise, the internet fodder machine was just ramping up. So the power of print to define who you were was very much that, the power of print. Now, the next part of this is my own speculation and maybe a theory to address the big elephant in the room. With Jimmy's success and his ability to navigate the businesses of television, the world of boxing, film, and other ventures, was this singular career disappointment the breaking point for Jimmy to start to think in his mind it was okay to go back and dabble in a street game? It would make sense. If they all think I'm the bad guy, why not at least enjoy the money that comes with being the bad guy? Did Jimmy somehow create a situation where on the side he could flip some money, become part of a small operation that generated cash that he could hide? All of this stuff is what has always made this story bigger and more complex than the narrative Jimmy as drug kingpin. And the most difficult part of this story to unpack is the immense gray area that these issues all reside in. In America, we like our criminal justice stories to be black and white, good guy versus bad guy, makes it easier. Guilty, innocent. No one, including Jimmy, has ever said he was innocent as it relates to the drug charges. Many times Jimmy has posed the question to me, why not sentence me to what I did or sentence me with the other figures that surrounded me in the drug game? I know it's made my job harder. And when you sit down to tell this story of Jimmy's trials, all these topics are filled with contradictions, filled with misinformation and filled with mystery. And I want to know the exact answers, but like in life, those answers we all seem to want are fleeting. In closing, in the email, Jimmy says some parting words that are poignant and could describe the decisions he made after January 30th of 2007. These words are as follows. Thanks for the dream and hope. I guess this was one time we rooted for the bad guy and he almost won.